Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit sozosmtx.com. So we're going to dive in this morning. If you have scripture, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 16. And um, I'm going to talk to us today a little bit about the new covenant. Surprise, surprise. Um, I really only have one message, and it's that the kingdom is here and the new covenant is better than we thought it was. And uh, I just say it in many different ways. But um, I believe this, that we have yet to scratch the surface of how good this new covenant actually is. We have yet to scratch the surface of all that Jesus has provided to us in his new covenant. And uh, I want to dive into that. I want to look a little bit uh, deeper into that. And the question that I've been asking and the question I want to ask us today is what makes this new covenant so new? You see, because for many of us, we live in such a way that we just live under an old covenant system and we sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on top. But everything changed at the cross. Amen? And so we're going to look at John chapter 16. We're going to start in verse 5, and uh, we're going to dive in, and it's going to be really good. John chapter 16, verse 5. So in order for us to understand what's happening here, we have to see that Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples, and so he's speaking with them, and he begins to tell them that he's leaving soon, okay? And so what you have to understand is that the disciples have been with Jesus for three years. They've seen the ministry. They've seen the miracles. They've seen fish and bread multiplied, Jesus walking on water. And at this point, they had an understanding that Jesus was the promised Messiah. So they're, they're right in that case. But in their understanding, they had a preconceived idea of what it was going to look like for Jesus to be the Messiah, they knew that he would be savior. They knew that he would be king. But in their minds, they still saw it in a physical sense. They were waiting for him to make Israel great again, to deliver them from Roman oppression. And so when Jesus begins to speak of his death, they're like, what do you mean you're going to die? You're becoming king. And so this is where we pick up in John chapter 16. It says this, Jesus says, but now I'm going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask, where am I going? And now that I've told you, your hearts are full of sadness. But listen to this. Verse seven, he says, but I'm telling you the truth. It is better for you that I go away. Because if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I do go away, then I will send him to you. The title of my message this morning is, it is better. Tell your neighbor, it is better. It is better. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, we thank you that it is better this way. God, I thank you for the new covenant that's based on better promises. And this morning, I pray that you would open up our eyes to all the realities that you've made available to us in the covenant that you made with your son. And this morning, I pray that our hearts would be opened. And I pray that we would walk into all that you have for us today. In Jesus' name, Amen. It is better. I want to share a story with you this morning. I can remember being a young boy. I think it was like 12 years old. And uh, I got really excited as a little kid about vacation. I still get very excited about vacation today. I think it's part of the human experience. Um, but as a 12-year-old boy growing up in Southeast Texas, there was one thing I never got to experience, and that's snow. 
So until the age of 12, I'd never seen snow. And so when my grandpa called me and he asked if I wanted to go to Colorado, my one question was, is, are we going to get to see snow? And he was like, yes, there's going to be snow. I'm like, I'm in, let's go to Colorado. So my grandpa takes me, he, he drives from Abilene down to Southeast Texas. He picks me up and we begin our road trip to Colorado. So we're driving, we stay the night, and we wake up the next morning, and uh, we're driving through New Mexico. Now, if any of you guys have ever made the drive through Colorado, you know you drive through Texas for like, you know, 72 hours or so, and then you're almost there. And so we're driving through New Mexico, and I'd fallen asleep in the back of the car. And as we're driving, I wake up and I look out the window, and there's snow on the ground. Now, it was like a light dusting at best, right? Mostly ice. And not only was there snow, but in my, in my mind, there were mountains in the distance. Now, I, I realize now that there were just like large hills. You know, we have larger hills here in, in hill country than that. But I start freaking out because I'm like, there's snow, there's mountains. And I yell at my granddad. I'm like, stop the car, stop the car. And so he starts laughing because he knows how excited I am to see snow. We pull over to the side of the road and I get out of the car, like barrel out of the car. And I'm playing in the snow and I'm making these ice balls and I'm throwing them at him. And I'm like having the time of my life because I've seen snow for the first time. And as I make my way back to the car, I can remember my granddad was like laughing at me and he puts his arm around me and he says, son, he says, if you think this is amazing, you haven't seen anything yet. It's about to get so much better. And I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. Okay, so we get in the car, we continue to drive and we make our way up to Estes Park. And I can remember, Chris Paul loves Estes Park. His dad lives there. Um, we, we reminisce over Estes Park a lot, but we pull in and there's mountains everywhere and there's actual snow, like inches of snow, tons of snow. And I can remember thinking in that moment as a young boy, like if, I, if we would have just stopped in New Mexico, I would have been really disappointed because like this is the real thing. You see, the reality is, is in the kingdom of God, many of us do the same thing. We settle for less than what God has provided because we're okay with average. And you see, this is the place that the disciples find them in, in this story, is that they think it's, this is as good as it gets. We are the chosen of the Messiah, and we're eating with him and drinking with him, and we're watching the miracles firsthand. But the reality is, Jesus tells the disciples in John 14, he says, the things that you see me do now, you're going to do these things, and even greater things than these, because I go to my Father. What the disciples didn't understand is that everything was about to change and it was for their good. Amen? Amen. You know, I was, I was thinking as I was processing through this message about how many times, especially as a young kid in Sunday school, when I would hear stories of Jesus or hear stories of Old Testament figures, I would say things like, man, if only I could have been with Jesus, if only I could have seen the miracles if only I could have been there when he walked on water, like, can you imagine? Or you, you look at Moses or Elijah and you say, if only I could have seen with my own eyes the splitting of the Red Sea or calling down fire from heaven. And we get so excited about these stories, not realizing that those prophets prophesied about a day that we're living in. The scripture says that prophets and righteous men of old looked forward to a day that God would establish a new covenant and they actually longed to be in your shoes. And so if we live and we're not aware that it's actually better this way, then what we'll do is we'll adhere to religious doctrine and miss out on what God is actually offering, and that's to be made one with him. Yeah. Amen? It is better this way. 
So as we look at the old covenant, what I want to do is I just want to, I want to take a second to look at what actually makes the new covenant new because it's so much better than the old covenant. You see, in the old covenant, Moses, God made a covenant with Moses. And in this covenant with Moses, um, here's what we have to understand. In the old covenant, what really changed at the cross is in the old covenant, God made a covenant with Moses on behalf of the people of Israel. In the new covenant, God didn't make a covenant with a man. He made a covenant with his son. You see, the old covenant is a covenant between God and man, meaning God's on one side of the covenant, man's on the other side of the covenant, and man has a responsibility to hold up his end of the deal. If you do good, you get blessed. If you do bad, you get cursed. The new covenant, the father makes a covenant with his son, meaning man is not on either side of the covenant except for Jesus, and there's a perfect representative here and a perfect representative here, meaning you couldn't mess it up if you tried. The way that we enter into the new covenant is not through performance, but what Paul says to be found in Christ. You see, in the old covenant, Moses goes up to meet with God on the mountain, and it says this, that he encounters God. He speaks to God as a man speaks with his friends, and his face began to shine, and his clothes became luminescent. And as he makes his way off of the mountain, it says that he had to put a veil over his face because the glory of this encounter that he had just had was so strong that the people of God could not bear to look at the face of Moses. Paul and the writer of Hebrews says this, that the glory of that covenant wanes in comparison to the glory of the new covenant. And so if the glory of the old caused a man's face to shine and his clothes to glow in the dark, then what do we have access in this new covenant? What do we have access to? I could promise you it's more than what we realize today and we've barely scratched the surface. I know for me, I've barely scratched the surface to all that God has provided to us in the new covenant. So what I wanna do is I wanna take a second and I wanna give you three new covenant perspectives. There's probably millions of them, but today we're going to focus on three new covenant perspectives, and we're going to ask the question, what is it that makes this new covenant new? You guys good with that? The first one I want to look at, that's what's new about the new covenant, is that we have a new temple. Say new temple. Look at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. It says this, it says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? You see what Paul is saying? We we read scriptures like that and we're like, yes, we know, we understand Paul. But what he is saying in his time was revolutionary. You see, because the temple was not only the foundational piece of the Jewish faith, it was the centerpiece of their entire livelihood. You see, the temple was where they hung out. The temple was where they fellowshiped. The temple was where the priest ministered. The temple was where they worshiped, where they sacrificed. And it was believed to be that the temple was where God himself lived. Beyond a veil in the Holy of Holies, God, the very presence of God, lived at the temple. It was the meeting place between heaven and earth. And so when Paul makes the claim that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, they're like, hold up, this is different. You see, as we look in Matthew chapter 24 in the Olivet Discourse, you can see it in Luke 21 as well. 
What we see, well, if you go back a chapter in Matthew 23, one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture, Jesus rebukes the snot out of the Pharisees. Can I get an amen? He's like, you whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers, you hypocrites, dead men's bones. He's rebuking the religious leaders of the temple and he's saying, you think you live righteous, but you're making people more children of hell than you are. And you're like, whoa, okay, Jesus is serious. He leaves the temples and the disciples are walking with him. And right when they leave the temple and they're walking up to the Mount of Olives, it says that the disciples turn Jesus's attention to the temple and they say, Jesus, isn't the temple so beautiful? Look at these buildings. Isn't it amazing? This is how Jesus responds. He said, do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth. They're about to be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. They're like, Jesus, look at the temple. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Like this is the centerpiece of our faith. And he says, yeah, it's about to be destroyed. It's quite honestly the most offensive thing for Jesus to say. But what the disciples didn't understand is, is that God was no longer going to dwell in places made with human hands, but he was going to dwell humanity itself. You see, the disciples loved the temple because it was where they would go to worship. And what they didn't understand is, is that they weren't going to have to go to the temple to worship anymore. They were going to become the temple. They were about to become the meeting place. They were about to come the dwelling place of God's spirit. And so God is saying to the disciples, there is something happening and it's about to be incredibly better than what you could have ever imagined. With Jesus's last breath, he hangs on the cross a few days later. And we know that with his dying breath, as he breathes his last breath, the scripture says that the veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the outer courts was torn from top to bottom, not bottom to top as if we had anything to do with it, but from top to bottom, signifying that the presence of God would no longer be kept in this one little location. You see, he tore the veil and it was a prophetic declaration that no longer would God be kept in and no longer would we be kept out. He gave access to the very presence of God and this was revolutionary. Jesus actually becomes the high priest and the sacrifice. He becomes the sacrifice to put an end to all sacrifices and he takes his very own blood. He sprinkles your heart with it. He sprinkles your consciousness. He makes you holy and now your heart is the dwelling place of God. Your heart becomes the holy of holies. And you see, if we don't recognize what has really happened, then we live less than what God has provided for us. You see, the difference between us and the disciples following Jesus, and I'm, I'm very big on language, I'm very careful with the language I use, because the disciples were followers of Jesus. I'm careful to use that language. The reason why is, is because they were following a physical Jesus around the desert, but you and I aren't following Jesus, he lives in us. You see, when we look at the disciples, we have to understand there's a shift. They're around Jesus. They have access to him in a physical sense, but that is an inferior reality to what you have with the spirit of God, the spirit of Jesus now living inside of you. You see, they could eat and drink with him at a table, but he speaks to your heart. And so it is better this way. And now that you have become the temple of the Holy Spirit, you are the place where heaven meets earth. You are in a walking and encounter with God. 
You are the burning bush that is consumed with fire. You are the holiest place on earth. I like to mess with people's heads because we, we, we think that there are holy sites on earth. And, and I, I understand that Israel, we call it the holy land. I totally get that. But Israel's not the holiest place on earth anymore. You are. And this messes with our minds. But the reality is, is God has made you his dwelling. And if we would grasp that at its fullness, then we would recognize that the words of Jesus in John 14 are very true, that the things he did, now we have the responsibility to do, the opportunity to do, and greater things than him because he's gone to his father and he sent the very spirit of God into your being. The same spirit in the old covenant that would kill men when it was mishandled and cause grown men to fall on their faces under its weight now lives inside of you. See, people say sometimes, and I totally understand that it's like weird, you know, when God starts moving and people start falling down or people start shaking. God lives inside of us. It's, it's a miracle we don't explode. <laughs> like seriously, the Shekinah glory of God is inside of you. It's a miracle that we can like wake up and brush our teeth and live somewhat normal. He lives in us and it changes everything when we really realize that I am now the temple. I don't have to go somewhere to find God. He's not austere. He's not abstract. He's in us. So we have become the temple of the Holy Spirit. You guys good? Yeah. The second thing, oh man, there is no time on that clock. <laughs> <laughs> the second point I have for you that's new about the new covenant is that God has given us a new nature. Say new nature. Yeah. This is huge. Second Peter chapter one, verses three through four, Peter writes, that his divine power has granted to us all things pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Listen to this. So that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. See, like we said earlier, the disciples following Jesus, as we read their stories, there's something that's different about you and them, and it's that you have a new nature. You see, pre-cross, none of the disciples were born again. They were doing their best to try to figure it out following Jesus. I like to look at Peter and use him as an example. We love to preach about Peter, right? How many sermons have you heard about how much of a goober Peter was, right? We hear it all the time, man, Peter was a knucklehead. He couldn't get it right. And, and, and I get it. Like, I can identify with Peter as well sometimes. But here's the reality. Peter, we know, he comes to Jesus. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God, the Messiah. He says, you're blessed, Peter. God revealed this to you. I'm about to go die. Peter says, you'll never die. What does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. He's always messing up, right? As Jesus was betrayed, it says three times, Peter, denied Jesus. Peter was so insecure that he even to a little girl came to him and says, weren't you with Jesus? He's like, no, 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 no. I wasn't with him. Three times Peter denies Jesus, but this is what we have to understand about Peter. Peter denies Jesus three times and the same Peter just a few days later stands up at Pentecost, preaches the gospel and 3000 people get saved in one day. Something happened to Peter. He got a new nature. You see, and I like to ask the question, which Peter do we identify with? Is it the Peter that denies Jesus or is it the Peter that walks streets and shadows fall on sick people and they get out of bed? 
You see, something happened in the life of Peter and something has happened in your life. You have been given the divine nature. And this messes with us because we don't always feel like it. We don't always feel like we're made new. But listen to this, Galatians chapter five, verse 24, it says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. You see, we have to understand that the cross did more to just forgive our sins, it gave us a new nature. And so God has taken your sinful nature, nailed it to a tree, and he gave you a son nature. So now when he looks at you, he doesn't call you by your sin, but he calls you as a son. And so we, we pick up cute like little phrases in church and it gets so rooted down deep in us. And like I said, I'm big on language because language matters. What you say matters. What you say about yourself over and over ultimately becomes what you believe about yourself and how you believe about yourself determines how you live. And so we say things in church like, oh, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Nowhere in scripture are you identified as a sinner saved by grace? I like to imagine Paul writing to the church at Philippi, to the sinners at Philippi. Now, what does he call them? He calls them saints. He calls them by their new identity. You see, we're not sinners saved by grace. We were sinners. And if, I mean, I don't know about you, but I was really good at it and sometimes still am, but that's not my identity. I wasn't, I'm not a sinner saved by grace. I'm a son. I've been given a new nature. We, we say things like this. We read Paul, and, and if you read the King James Version, you know, the one that Paul read, um, <laughs> I went right over your heads. Um, we read scriptures that Paul writes where in the King James, it's translated that he dies daily. Poor translation. And in the Bible you read, it's probably not translated that way. And so we say things like, oh, brother, you just got to die daily. You just got to wake up every morning and die to him. Paul did not say that he died daily. This is huge. What he's actually saying is, is he's saying, I face death every single day. He says, through floggings, through sneers, through wild beasts in Galatia, I face death every day. Paul doesn't die daily. Paul died once and for all, according to Galatians 2. He was crucified with Christ, and now he lives by faith. You see, but many of us live act, acting as if every morning we have to die, we have to die, we have to die. And the reality is, is that when he died, you died. And so now the life you live is not in religious crucifying of the flesh, but by faith in what Jesus has done. And we walk by faith in a reality that settled it once and for all. You've been given a new nature. He gave you his nature. You see, scripture says in 2 Corinthians that God has commanded us not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, right? It's a command of scripture that we wouldn't be unequally yoked. And I've, I've got news for us that God is actually not holding us to a standard that he doesn't have for himself, God has made you divinely compatible with himself. God has given you a new nature and he gave you his spirit so that he could be married to you and you're compatible with him. Everything about you is made new. And even when it doesn't feel like it's new, we have to believe that the reality of how God sees me and what he's done is that I am a new creature Creature. I'm a new creation with a new nature, and the life I live flows from that identity, not trying to attain to it. So we've been given a new nature. 
The third thing that I have for you today that God made new in the new covenant is that he gave us a new righteousness. This is huge. He gave us a new righteousness. Second Corinthians chapter five says that God made him, talking about Jesus, who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Notice the word become. You see, righteousness is not something you do. Righteousness is something you become. And so what's new about new covenant righteousness? What makes new covenant righteousness so new is that we've attained a righteousness that was never possible in the old covenant. You see, in the old covenant, even righteousness was man's own attempt at trying to be right with God. But in the new covenant, righteousness is his righteousness given to you. You See, righteousness is not about behavior. It's not about acting right. It's about becoming something. And so we, we, we pick up things in, in language. I'm referring to that a lot today. I wasn't intending to, but it's important. And we say things like, you know, I'm just growing in righteousness. And I think sometimes it comes from a poor understanding of what sanctification really is, but you can't grow in righteousness. Either you're as righteous as God or you're not righteous at all. Why? Because the righteousness that we have is not our own righteousness, it's his righteousness. And there's nothing tainted about his righteousness. And so either you're as righteous as he is or you're not righteous at all. I wanna, I wanna talk for a second about righteousness I think this is, this is huge um, because I, I really think a lot of our misunderstanding about righteousness comes from our uh, misunderstanding of what righteousness actually means um, and also what sin means. We're going to talk about sin today, okay? Don't start sweating on me. We're going to talk about righteousness and sin for a second because this is foundational to understanding what righteousness is actually means. And so we've been taught things like this. Raise your hand if you were taught this, that righteousness means right standing with God. How many of you heard that? Righteousness means right standing with God. And the question I've always had is, is if righteousness means right standing with God and we call him the righteous one, then who is he in right standing with? If righteousness means right standing with God, then who is God in right standing with. And then we, we talk about sin and we know that the Greek word for sin is the word hamartia and we've translated it to mean to miss the mark. But the question I always have is, is what mark? Is it the law? Because what Paul says is he says, according to, the, to righteousness sake, according to the law, I am blameless. That's what Paul says in Philippians. According to righteousness, according to the law, I am blameless. And so we have to understand what is righteousness and what is sin? I'm gonna take us to Greek class really quick and forgive my mispronunciation, okay? The Greek word for righteousness is diakasune. Say it with me, diakasune. Awesome. You know just as much Greek as I do now. This is the Greek word for righteousness. Listen to the definition. This is fascinating to me. Righteousness defined is the state of him who is as he ought to be. Righteousness is the state of him who is as he ought to be. And so here's the thing. When we see righteousness as simply right standing with God, what we do is we make righteousness a legal term and it was never intended to be a legal term. Righteousness means the state of him who is as he ought to be. Jesus was righteous because he was as he should be. 
Adam in the garden was righteous because he was exactly as he should be. And so the question becomes, how should we be? The way you were intended to be. Bearing the image of God. Eating from the tree of life. Living in perfect connection to God. You see, sin is not primarily bad because it violates the law of a holy God. Calvin invented that in the 1500s. That was never something the early church thought about sin. It's not bad because it violates some self-righteous holy God. It's bad because it deforms you. You see, the first instance we see in sin is in the garden. Man sins and what happens? We think that the first thing that happens is that God turned his back on us. But the reality of sin is that we sinned, it caused shame to settle in, and we turned our back on him. You see, sin didn't change God, it changed us. And we sometimes have a view of sin that thinks that because we ate an apple, God can't look at us anymore. But the reality is, is the first thing that happened after we sinned is God came looking for us in the garden. And he said, where are you? But no longer could we relate to him rightly because shame and fear and guilt had set in. And now we have this deformity that is known as sin. This is what sin actually means. Listen to this. The Greek word for sin is hamartia. Say that one with me, hamartia. And we were taught that it means to miss the mark. And that's a piece of it. But I would like to suggest that to miss the mark is not sin. To miss the mark is the consequence of sin. Listen to this. Hamartia comes from the word ha, which is negative or without, and meros, which means portion or form. And so sin, literally translated, means to be without your allotted portion or without form, pointing to a disoriented, distorted, deformed, and bankrupt identity. And so at its core, what sin is, is to live out of context with the blueprint of one's design. And so the first sin in the garden is not that they took the fruit. The first sin in the garden is that they believed a lie. The sin in the garden was not the action. It was the thought that led to an action. What was the thought? I am not who God says I am. I have to do something in order to prove that I am who God says I am. The devil comes to Eve and says this, comes to him and says, did you not know that if you ate that fruit, then you would become like God? But what she was forgetting is that she was already like God. So the enemy tries to get us to do something through thought to prove that we are who he says we are. And he lies to you about who you are. And then we get into religion trying to do things to attain to what God has already said about us. And so sin is to be without form. It's to be deformed. And this is what sin does. And it becomes a pattern that when we sin, when we believe a thought about ourselves that is apart from what God does, we begin to live out of context with how God actually created us. And it becomes a cycle and it traps us. And we try to deal with the actions and you will never cut the action off at the head unless you deal with the deeper root, which is that we've been deformed by a lie. Does this make sense? So we have Daikasune, we have Hemartia. And this is, this is what I want to say. I'm, I'm not saying that sin isn't bad. Sin is bad. And the reason it's bad is because it destroys us. But here's, here's what I am saying. Is that if we see sin simply as missing the mark, then we'll try to become an expert at hitting the mark while remaining without form. And that, my friends, is the definition of religion. It's to try to do things right 
while not addressing the heart. It's what Jesus said about the Pharisees. He says, you're whitewashed tombs. You pretend and you've dressed up your tomb out here, but on the inside, you're dead. And this is how we try to approach sin. We try to stop sinning. Listen, it doesn't matter how hard you try. You can't stop doing bad things in your actions. It all has to start here and it has to start here. And so if we focus only on trying to hit the mark of stop sinning, then it'll leave you with one thing and it's try harder. And religion has never had any other message other than try harder. Try harder. I want you to go with me to Galatians chapter four and I'm gonna close here. And I feel like this is significant for some of us because most of us grew up probably, raise your hand if you grew up in church. How many of you guys grew up in church? The experience for many of us is that we grew up in religion and we're more wounded by religion than we realize we are. We're more wounded by the try harder than we think we are. And what most of us live with today is that we love Jesus with all of our hearts, but the try harder is still ringing in the back of our heads. Can you relate? I wanna look at Galatians chapter four because what I feel like God wants to do this morning as we go back into worship in a second is release grace for us to say, I'm done with that old covenant nagging voice of condemnation and I'm stepping fully into the new. Look at Galatians four. This is fascinating. Paul is talking about Abraham, Sarah, and Ishmael. Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, and Isaac, and Ishmael. Listen to this, Galatians 4. It says, tell me, you who want to live under the law, do you know what the law actually says? Paul is savage. (laughs) He says, the scriptures say that Abraham had two sons, one from the slave and one from a free wife. The son of the slave wife was born, listen to this, in a human attempt to bring about the fulfillment of God's promise. Does that resonate? I know it resonates with me. But the son of the freeborn wife was born as God's own fulfillment of his promise. These two women serve as illustrations of God's two covenants. The first woman is Hagar, and she represents Mount Sinai, where people received the law that enslaved them. Uh Uh-oh. And now Jerusalem is just like Mount Sinai in Arabia because she and her children live in slavery to the law. But the other woman, Sarah, represents the heavenly Jerusalem. She is the free woman. She is our mother. And you, dear brothers and sisters, are children of the promise, just like Isaac. Listen to this. But you are now being persecuted by those who want you to keep the law. Just as Ishmael, the child born by human effort, persecuted Isaac, the child born by the power of the spirit. But what do the scriptures say? Get rid of the slave and her son. For the son of the slave woman will not share the inheritance with the, son, with the free woman's son. So dear brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman. We are children of the free woman. I want to read to you really quick a portion of Brian Simmons' footnotes from the Passion Translation. I don't often preach from the Passion Translation, but I love what Brian Simmons says about this text in Galatians. Brian Simmons on Galatians just It's fascinating. If you have a copy of the Passion Translation, I would encourage you to go read his footnotes for it. He says this. He says, this allegory is showing that the two sons are not meant to live together. You cannot mingle law and grace, for only grace is based upon the promise of new life. You see, 
in our modern evangelical expression of church here in the West specifically, I don't believe that we've gotten the gospel 100% wrong. But I do believe that we have the gospel in mixture to some measure. And that, my friends, I believe is more dangerous than having it wrong. A gospel with mixture can do more damage than not even knowing it at all. You see, it may be 90% grace and 10% law. You may have 50% grace and 50% law. If you grew up in a church like me, it's probably like 25% grace and 75% law. But whatever the mixture is, the danger is the hybrid offspring that it produces within us. That hybrid offspring of mixing law and grace. Because what it does to us is that it causes people who say, I love Jesus with all of my heart, but I'm still not convinced that I'm loved. I love Jesus with everything inside of me, but we spend all of our energy trying to measure our own success to determine whether or not we're qualified. That's the offspring child. That's what it looks like when you marry law and grace. That's what it looks like when we try to live out this new covenant promise and there is the nagging voice of Ishmael in our ear. It's exactly what was happening in Galatia and it's exactly what happens in a lot of us if we're honest. Look with me at Genesis chapter 21 and the band can, the band can go ahead and come up. We're gonna close. Galatians chapter 21, this is what Paul was referring to or Genesis 21, this is what Paul was referring to in Galatians 4. It says, speaking of Isaac, it says, the child grew and was weaned. And on the day that Isaac was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. So what we have is, is Isaac is moving, it's, it's weaning day for Isaac. He's moving out of childhood and he's moving towards maturity. And on the day that he was weaned, Abraham held a great feast. But Sarah saw that the son whom Hagar the Egyptian had borne to Abraham was mocking Isaac. And she said to Abraham, get rid of the slave woman and her son, for that woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. So here's the picture. You have Isaac, who's born of the promise, and then you have Ishmael, who was birthed by way of human effort, okay? Self-effort, willpower, and religion will always have consequences. Human effort, trying harder, and like human effort trying to attain to what God has already promised will always have consequences. So Abraham, he takes matters into his own hands and he births a son in his own strength that becomes symbolic of people born into slavery. This is fascinating. And so what we have is, is on the day that the promised child is weaned, you find the one who represents slavery to the law mocking the child of the promise. See, self-effort, slavery, the law was mocking the promise and many of us are so familiar with its voice. Do better, try harder, you're not enough. And we've learned to allow that thing in our lives to get so cozy and it's mocking you as you move into maturity. The voice of religion will mock you to the day that you die. We say, yeah, I know that you're like moving forward. I know that you're maturing, but you'll ne- it's not enough. You'll never, you'll, it'll never be enough. You'll never become what God has called you to be. You'll never do it. And it mocks us. So what does God say to do? It says, on the day that Isaac was weaned, as Isaac was stepping into maturity, it says, get rid of the slave woman and her son. They'll never share in the inheritance. 
Get rid of the mocking voice of Ishmael. It will never share in the inheritance of the son. This morning, I, I felt so strongly in my heart that God was making a prophetic declaration over us and he was saying it's weaning day. It's time to get rid of the mocking voice of the accuser from our lives. It's time to say, God, I'm, I'm living in this old reality and I feel like you're gonna curse me and I feel like you're gonna strike me down, but I sprinkle a little bit of Jesus and he's saying there's grace to move from the old to the new today. There's grace to say I'm divorcing the lie of the accuser in my life. I'm divorcing with the voice of the condemning mocker in my life and I'm saying yes to new covenant relationship with God. Where the scripture says my sheep will hear my voice. Where the scripture says that the blood of Jesus speaks louder than every other voice in your life. The voice of the accuser is drowned out by the voice of your beloved father saying, this one's mine, this one's mine, and I love them dearly. So the only thing that religion has ever offered us is try harder, do better. I love Jesus. Colossians tells us that Jesus says that he disarmed and defeated principalities and powers, which means the enemy has no feet or arms. <laughs> he has no feet, he defeated them and he disarmed them. He has no power over your life. And it says this, it says that on the cross, Jesus made a public spectacle, a public mockery, nailing it to the tree. What Jesus has done to us, for us, is that he has mocked the very things that mock you. He made a public spectacle of every condemning voice that's saying you're not enough. And he nailed it to the tree and he silenced it once and for all. And I, I believe this, that it's time for the church to expel the mocking voice of Ishmael and to really believe what he says about us, that I am not trying to be righteous for God, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'm not trying to get somewhere where God is, I am the place where he lives and he likes it here. God lives in you and he likes to live in you. He's not tolerating you, he's obsessed with you. It's not a people who wrestle saying, I have good days and bad days and I'm just trying to figure it out and I'm trying to see if God loves me. No, he gave you a brand new nature and he took the sinful nature and he nailed it to a tree and he said, you're a new creation, not a better version of your old self, something that has never been seen before. This is the reality of who we are. And many of us so desperately want to hear the voice of our father, but it's so hard to hear because all we can hear is the mocking voice of Ishmael. Would you stand with me this morning? This is what I felt like there was an invitation to this morning. I just wanna invite people this morning that you feel like you are stuck between two covenants. Like I really believe that Jesus is good, but I just don't know if the new covenant is as good as those people up there are saying it is. And I feel like there is promise from God, but I somehow have gotta to try to make it happen in human effort. And I just feel like there's an invitation to say enough is enough. I don't wanna do that anymore. Joel and I were just talking in the green room earlier and I, he said something that I, it's just, I've been thinking about it all morning. You see, there is a leaven called the leaven of the Pharisees. And if we're quite honest, it's in every one of us. I get disgusted with myself when I look at people different than me and the first thought is judgment. Because I know that's not who I am. But I also know 
that I've spent years of my life in religion and I was like this dough in the oven where the leaven of the Pharisee was making its way through my life. And it causes us to believe lies as if God is looking at our outward appearance and what we're doing in order to figure out if he's pleased with us. And so what I was thinking about is I don't believe that there are people in the room that like, we're not a church that is like just super religious and legalistic. I don't believe that at all. But I think the real issue is, is that many of us have been affected by that. And when you get affected by that, what it does is, is it so traumatizes our mind to see God in a certain way. And it's so hard to leave that behind. You guys relate to that. And so what I wanna do today is I just wanna have a time. We're gonna go back into worship and I wanna invite you to come down to the front. If you're in this room and you're like, you know what? I am struggling with that voice of condemnation. I'm struggling with that try harder or I feel this need to make stuff happen in my own strength. I wanna invite you to come down to the front. And what I want you to do is I want us to put a stake in the ground today to say, I am done giving my ear to the voice of the accuser. And I am choosing today to say, God, I know, I know that you made everything new and I'm believing it today. And I believe that God wants to speak to you today. I believe he wants to speak words of identity over you today. And he wants to silence the voice of the accuser. Let me pray for us. And I wanna invite you to come if you'd like. We're gonna have ministry teams that are just kind of make their way and, and pray over you as you come. And I just, Jesus, I thank you for what you've done. And I thank you that you made everything new at the cross. And I thank you at the cross was the very first time for us to really see what you were like. At the cross, you were revealing to us what you were actually like. While people were murdering you, you said, this is how I love. And I thank you that as we look at you, Jesus, we could trust that you are good and there is no bad side. And so I just break the lie of religion, of striving, of performance, of not good enough. God, I break off the lie that we've seen your good side, but just somehow we're gonna see your bad side and you're gonna, God, I just declare that you are good. And this new covenant that we're in is based on one thing alone and it's forgiveness, not performance. And so this morning, I pray for grace for us to just say, you know what? I'm divorcing the old and I'm moving completely into the new. We love you, Jesus. Amen. I just wanna invite you. If you feel like, man, I just, I just wanna make a stand today to say I'm moving out of that place and I'm moving into something new today. I wanna invite you to come down to the front. Just make yourself available to the Lord and say, God, I want you to speak to me today. I want you to speak the words of beloved identity over my life today. And just trust that he's silencing the voice of the accuser. Amen. You guys come forward as you feel led.